Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Profit for small firm architects, it's our free course. We'll teach you how to earn 20% on your next project. Download it today for free, entrearchitects.com slash free course. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAP, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and much more at rcat.com, FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. And Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. Rachel Preston Prins, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. We've been, we've been friends on Twitter a long time. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's great to finally hear your voice. And to, uh, to have you on the show here to sort of share your knowledge with our community. So it's great, great to have you here. Thanks so much. Let me, it's great uh, to finally meet you, too. <laughs> uh, let me, let me um, introduce you for those who don't know who you are. Uh, Rachel is an architecturally trained American designer working in architecture and design, placemaking, cultural and historic preservation, and community engagement. Rachel promotes <laughs> the craft of architecture and the genus loci, of, or, which is spirit of place. Um, as told through photography, publishing, marketing, and design. Uh, in addition to running the consulting firm Arcania, 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 got it, and, and the <laughs> nonprofit Architecture for Everybody, Rachel has served as a preservation commissioner in Taos, New Mexico, as the host of the University of New Mexico Taos Sustainability Institute, and as co-host of the TEDx ABQ Ar Albuquerque Women. Um, Rachel's work has been featured on television at HGTV, Bravo, uh, New Mexico PBS, and Canadian PBS, and in print at Reader's Digest, Trend, Inc. Magazine. Uh, she's been featured in numerous articles, talks, podcasts, interviews, books on design, <laughs> leadership, finding and finding uh, courage in difficult circumstances. Uh, Rachel's an expert people connector, which is why I like her, because I'm a people <laughs> connector too. It's my passion, so we, we definitely click there. Um, yes. And she brings new and exciting energy to everything she does. And it is great to have you here, Rachel, on the Entree Architect podcast. 
Thanks so much. Let's roll right into your origin story. Let's learn more about you. Uh, where did you discover architecture? What inspired you to, to take this journey uh, and tell us that story to where you find yourself today? Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's a, a, an interesting story and, and sort of convoluted. Uh, and, and it's been convoluted the whole time, but it's been a great adventure, so I've enjoyed it. <laughs> um, so uh, interestingly, I, when I started, uh, not even when I started in architecture, let's get earlier than that. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, I uh, actually ran away from home and <laughs> told my mom and dad the only way I would come home is if they put me in military school. <laughs> it's, because, a, it's a great <laughs> story already. This <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, it's kind of weird. But um, because I wanted to be a radar intercept officer in an F-14. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I didn't actually want a pilot. I wanted to be a navigator. I wanted to basically be Goose and Top Gun. Yeah. And, and so how, you were in high, high school? A teenager? I was actually in junior high. Junior high. Got it. Um, and I, actually, I graduated high school early. But um, so I, anyway, so I did go to military school and uh, started training for um, flying and was hoping to go to Annapolis and was in my physical one year. And the doctor said, sat me down and said, Rachel, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're never going to fly mm. because you have some eye problems that we're going to need to resolve. And um, so that would that that's just something we need to take off the table right now. Um, and that was pretty devastating for me. Uh, but I went ahead and finished out the year and then I decided, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself, but I hate being in high school. And, uh, so I actually started, uh, correspondence courses at college and, uh, graduated high school early and, um, went to, uh, university of North Texas because my mom and dad, um, said that they would pay for school, but only if I went to school in Texas and only if I went to business school. Um, and University of North Texas actually happened to have a really great psychology program. And so, and I was kind of interested in psychology. Um, so uh, I went two years to North Texas. And when I was 19, my mom called me before I went home for Easter and she said, Rach, when you come home for Easter, I want you to bring khaki slacks and a blue blazer and a white button down shirt and a long skirt and all these, like, she just goes down this list. Oh, and walking shoes. And, and she said, I have a surprise for you. And I was kind of thoroughly excited about it, but also kind of perplexed because my mom hadn't dressed me since I was left home <laughs> at 15. And uh, so, yeah, so I drove up to my house and my mom was parked out in front and my dad walked out and he got my bags out of the back of the trunk of my car and put them in my mom's car. And my mom handed me my passport and she said, I love you so much and I know you're a little lost and I have a present for you. And she flew me to Paris. Oh, my goodness. I know. And with, with her or by yourself? With her. With her. Got it. And, um, and she had talked to all of my professors and got me out of school for a week and uh, actually 10 days or so. And um, and we just went and explored France. And from the minute that I arrived in Paris, something shifted in me. And then we got to Saint-Chapelle Cathedral, uh, the little it's not really a cathedral, but it's a tiny little thing. Um, but it's just exquisite. I'm sure you know it. Um, and that really shifted me. And then we walked over to Notre Dame and there were five priests up on the dais as we walked in and each of them was singing in a different language. And somehow, as we're walking towards the front of the room, I could just, I could distinctly hear those three, those five different languages, sort of raise above me into this chorus that was something totally new, and not any of the languages, but almost like kind of heavenly in a way. Yeah. And I, I literally fell down. I literally fell down and started weeping, and I was like, I want to figure out how to create spaces that make that make this happen. Yeah. That, that's powerful. <laughs> and literally the minute that I got home, I um, transferred to Texas A&M and enrolled in the architecture program. 
um, and which was just absolutely an extraordinary experience. Um, and uh, I ended up being able to, I thought I was going to go to Harvard for my uh, master's degree, but A&M offered me a kind of a unbelievable deal because they were really interested in my research um, where I basically got to do my master's in Europe, in Italy and France, working with Vivian Paul, one of the truly renowned Gothic cathedral scholars, doing the very, very first digital mapping, laser mapping of a cathedral, which we failed at spectacularly, by the way, because the technology, <laughs> yeah, just too early. <laughs> the technology was, but that's how it got there. Yeah, like, exactly. That's everybody who's a pioneer them and all of that stuff. Now, it, all of that started with the work that me and, and, and all these amazing people like um, Vivian were working on in those days in the nineties. And it's just absolutely extraordinary. And then I got to work on, um, I, I got several fellowships to stay in Europe and um, I ended up doing my thesis on Palladio's Villa Emo and getting to do their preservation plan, which was pretty awesome. And so you're doing this all through Texas A&M? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and it was just extraordinary. I had some really amazing professors and they just, they just never, they just never told me to stop, even though I had all these crazy ideas, <laughs> they kept sort of pushing me out and being like, okay, see if you can do it. Yeah. And I, and that's, that's I a was, gift in itself. I, that's the thing, you know, I, a lot of people go to really amazing schools with amazing professors. And, um, and in some ways I wish I would have gone to some of the bigger schools, but on the other hand, A&M was just such an extraordinary experience. And I'm still friends with lots of my professors and lots of the kids that I went to school with. And, um, so I feel like I, that was the beginning of starting sort of an architectural family for me. Um, and so I was constantly sort of lifted up by these people, um, who were inspiring me and telling me to keep going and, um, whatnot. And it was just extraordinary. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've been doing this for a bunch of years now, this podcast, and I ask this, this origin story of everyone. And it's much more often that you, as part of the origin story, that somebody has been discouraged during architecture school, that they've been, that they've been asked to leave or that they aren't good enough and that they should go do something else. Um, and I got that too. Yeah. I mean, that's just part of the game, right? Yeah, exactly. But, and, 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 but there's, there's when somebody like, and I've heard this a few times, but not as powerfully as yours, um, where somebody sort of steps in and encourages you to just keep going. They see something in you that, that is, that is blossoming and they don't want to lose it. And they just keep pushing you toward that direction. And so it's great to hear that part of your story. Yeah, it, it, it's it's critical. And there was one professor in particular who actually lives in Santa Fe. And uh, and so I've, I've had him in my life literally for 25 years now. And that wow. is just extraordinary. And he's been one of my biggest cheerleaders all along. So, yeah, it's really incredible. Yeah. So so keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to put an exclamation point on that part, because I want I want some I want some professors to hear that. And I want to. Yes. I want some some students who may be struggling through some of these these issues um, to know that there are people out there who will encourage you beyond uh, the people who are discouraging you. Absolutely, and go find them. That would be one yeah. piece of advice I would go to um, give to students now. If it's not a professor, um, go go meet people in AIA. Go meet people who are doing talks on design. Um, you know, really be fearless about trying to find someone who really gets what you're trying to do um, because that support will get you through all of the darkness that's ahead. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I don't mean to be morbid, but, you know, this is a hard profession. So. It is. It is. So keep going. I don't, I, it's a great story, and I don't want to – I sort of threw you <laughs> off, your, off your momentum here. So. Oh, no, no. It's totally fine. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I finished up school in Europe, came back, um, walked, the, walked the stage – and uh, immediately, my first thought was, I love working on this ancient architecture. I want to continue doing that. I'm definitely going to stay in preservation. And at that time, I, <laughs> um, I had applied to University of Virginia's Historic Preservation Program for their PhD program because I thought for sure I was going to teach. And, um, and I thought, you know, UVA is an incredible preservation program. At, at that time, they were pretty much the best of the best. And now there's other programs that, get, that try to, you know, give them a little bit of <laughs> competition. Um, but uh, and so I said, I'm going to move to Virginia 
because I thought that was the oldest architecture in America. I laugh at that now. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, but uh, I got to Virginia and um, got a little job in Charlottesville with a firm because I thought, you know, I don't want to be one of those people who can, uh, uh, t- who's, you know, they sort of accuse professors sometimes of not being able to do, so they teach. Mm-hmm. And I and I wanted some credibility, so I thought, I'm going to work for a year. And I got so into working that I was like, I don't need a PhD and I don't even know what they're saying anyway, half of the time. So I'm just going to keep working and see how that goes. Um, and that was incredible. I got to work on, um, tra- uh, historic train stations. I actually developed a strange expertise in historic train stations in Virginia and, uh, which is kind of weird and fun. Uh, it's a totally different than Gothic cathedrals and Palladium villas. Uh, yeah, but, but if you think uh, about it, those are our, our American cathedrals. In a certain way, they really kind of they yeah. are. <laughs> um, and uh, it was a, about a year and a half later, I was walking through my office past a bookcase. And I noticed that the, it was a metal bookcase. And I noticed that there was a kink in the bookcase. And I walked by that over and over again for quite a few days. And the kink, I could never, I would run my finger down it and I was like, oh my gosh, there's not a kink there, but I can see a kink. And eventually it finally registered with me that maybe there was something wrong with my eyes. And, or eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I made a doctor's appointment and I went to the appointment and uh, within about 10 minutes of being seen by the doctor, a nurse came in and said, we've made an appointment for you at UVA with the best specialist in the country. Um, and uh, you need to go over there right now. And they didn't tell me what was going on. They just told me I needed to see a specialist. And so I went straight over to the university and saw uh, a doctor who specializes in uh, retinal problems and macular problems. And he told me that I uh, have macular degeneration and that most likely um, I would be blind in three years. And how long ago was that? Uh, 15 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm still working. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know you could see because you saw me on the camera. So. Uh, right. Uh, so my center vision is gone in my right eye. And because it's my dominant eye, my brain sometimes thinks that my left eye is blind, too. Um, and there's no real telling when the when I'll be able to see and not see, which has been problematic because um, it's kind of hard to work, you know, 60 hours a week in a firm when you don't know if you have 20 or 60 hours a week that week of eye time coming. So so your eyes come <laughs> basically come in and out. Sometimes yeah. they work and sometimes they don't. Right. Right. And um, so that was a big adjustment. I was uh, pretty well halfway through my IDP program and um, and it, it got worse pretty gra- progressively, uh, very quickly. And they did some laser treatments to sort of arrest the um, com- to try to keep me from going completely blind. And that has worked for the most part, um, uh, some days <laughs> and, uh, and, but it's, it was pretty, it was pretty devastating, um, to the point where I ended up quitting architecture entirely, um, because emotionally I couldn't handle the idea of continuing on and, and maybe not being able to get all the way. Yeah. Um, but it only took a year before I was like, oh, my God, I have to go back. <laughs> the passion I'm was miserable. too strong. <laughs> I'm what, what did you do when you left? Um, I went and I, interestingly, I uh, so my best friend um, lived in Colorado. In fact, most pe- a lot of people in AI know of him uh, because he's kind of a legend. Um, Jason Pettigrew, who the, who the ARE scholarship is named after now. Um, and I said, you know, it, the last thing I want to see is going to be the Rocky Mountains. So I moved across the country and uh, moved just north of Denver and worked as a grant writer doing grants for nonprofits that wanted to do architectural projects. 
and was funded for some $3 million of grants for that. And so I actually developed a pretty cool little side expertise in being able to find money for projects, yeah. um, which has served me really well in the rest of my career. Um, so, and then I, so I went back to, uh, architecture to a firm and I got a job with, uh, a firm in Cheyenne, Wyoming, that was, they thought we're going to, um, move into historic preservation and they ended up not. So I ended up moving to Vail, Colorado and working on amazing multi-million dollar houses doing European design, um, timber framing and that kind of stuff, which was just amazing. Um, to experience that kind of, that level of design and detailing. Um, and so I just kept working. <laughs> I didn't give up. And then um, about 11 years ago, I sort of had this weird thing where I, I don't remember where I heard it originally, but there, I was listening, I can't remember if it was a TED talk or a lecture at an AIA convention and someone was talking about how 2% of architects, 2% of people can afford architects. And it, my jaw kind of dropped and, and something in that just fundamentally shifted me, um, in a way that I was never going to come back from. And I started looking at these giant, amazing houses that we were doing and being like, what is this for? And in my sort of crisis, I said, I, a friend of mine had moved down to Taos, New Mexico, and um, I came to visit her for the weekend, and I ended up moving here three weeks later. I just quit and moved. And uh, it was really extraordinary um, to come here, to go from that level of, of work and come here and um, watch people making things literally out of mud and sticks and rocks and <laughs> major <learn>. culture shift <laughs> literally. And some of these buildings have been here for a thousand years and they've been built that way and, and loved up. They they're treated every year with new mud and uh, sometimes new roofs. And it just, it really touched my heart because it, it became about architecture for, for regular people. And, um, as my eyes continued to progress, I, uh, it towards blindness and more difficulty in predicting when I would be able to work. I sort of just decided that I wanted to see how I can make a difference for the other 98% of the people who can't afford us. Yeah. Um, because I realized that if I was to take a map of the town that I lived in, any town that you live in actually, and make dots of, on the map of all of the lead and lead compliant or lead potential buildings um, and sustainable buildings or passive buildings or, or any of the you know great sustainability metrics that we have to work with today, there would be you know a few dots on the map. And I thought about, well, what about the other 150,000 dots on the map? How can we make those a little greener? And, um, so it really, I started to really dig into vernacular architecture and, uh, and place and architecture that responds to place. And it just took me down this amazing rabbit hole <laughs> that I never could have predicted where I'm working with tribes to tell their architectural story. And I'm working with historic sites to tell their architectural stories. And I've, and it's just become this thing where it's not really about, architecture and the elegance and the details and all of that anymore. It's more about this, this idea of architecture being part of a system, an ecosystem, a cultural system, you know, it responds to the environment and how we could elevate our, the way that we think and the way that we reach people. And, uh, so it's been a really interesting journey to get here, but it has taken a lot of twists and turns. For yeah. Sure. That's, that's some story. And, and, you know, I'm I am one who believes that everything happens for a reason, and that you're we're all on this path and this journey, and you end up where where it's the result of all the other things that happened in your life, both both good and bad. Um, Absolutely, and I agree with you're this. a perfect example of that. That you are where you are today, 
of all the, of that story that all the all of those those benchmarks that you talked about led to you led to you to where you are today and what you're doing Absolutely. today um, and it was so cool my um kind of as an aside my father uh actually passed away a few months ago and i'd gone home to help my mom um in his transition before he passed and we were all sitting there and i and i looked at them and i said you know it, I had gotten an email about something and I was kind of tearing up because I'm, I'm very attached to my projects and um, because it's from my heart now, right? It's not mm -hmm. from my head anymore. Yeah. And, uh, and I looked over at them and I said, you know, I finally feel like I'm at the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And it was just such a huge moment for me. Um, to realize that all of that had led up to something really beautiful. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm getting upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I could feel that, and and I could and I could imagine that you know you look back at your your teenage years, and right? it sounds like you you sort of had a difficult time as a teenager, weren't sure okay. where you wanted to be or what you wanted to do, and um, I mean anybody who sort of chooses to go to military school is a unique person, you know, that, that there's a lot of things going on in your life. If you're, if that's the, the choice that you want to make. Right. And my father had been a Marine Corps drill instructor, so that made it easier. But, um, I knew that I wanted to protect people Yeah. and that was, that has never changed. <laughs> right. It's fundamental to what I do. And that's kind of interesting that it shifted. Hey, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. We can't be doing this without them. So let's say thank you to Arcat, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Summer is for being outdoors and going on vacation, right? Not spending extra hours in the office. Well, luckily, our friends at Arcat can help. No matter where you are, maybe on a sandy beach or in a vacation home, or maybe you're working from home on your staycation, well, Arcat has a great tool to help you stay connected with colleagues and clients. Arcat's free service, Charette, allows you to create projects, collaborate, assign tasks, share your thoughts, or simply create a portfolio to promote your firm for free. It's absolutely free. Just like everything at Arcat, it's free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash Arcat and click on the Charette button right up at the top of the page. That's entrearchitect.com slash A-R-C-A-T, Arcat. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. And getting started with FreshBooks is ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. The same goes for tracking time, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. Fast, easy, maybe even life-changing. And if you need help at any time, free award-winning customer service is just a phone call or an email away. And if you have ever had second thoughts, don't worry. On top of our free trial for Entree Architect listeners, you get a 30-day money-back guarantee so you don't ever have to worry about choosing FreshBooks. So give FreshBooks a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks and then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access your free 30-day trial today. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations, and old-school payroll providers just aren't built for the way that we work today. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy for you to get it right. No longer do you have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. And to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free. Once you run a first payroll, three months free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash gusto. That is entrearchitect.com slash gusto, G-U-S-T-O, and claim your 
free three months of payroll processing today. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So what? So what are? So you're you're in you're in New Mexico now, um, New Mexico. and 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 you're working on these thousand year old homes and, and buildings. <laughs> um, so how are you doing that? What are you doing now um, in terms of architecture? And, and and you said you're you're telling the stories of architecture. So how are you doing yes. that? So um, a few years ago, I. Oh my goodness! There's a, another interesting layer of story that gets to happen. So. Um, when I moved to New Mexico in 2008, I, I, you know, I started to sort of rethink and I just, and like I said, I decided that I wanted to reach the other 98% of people who, um, can't afford an architect. And so I decided that I wanted to become a better speaker because I wanted to be able to go and, and, and speak to people about what we do and why it matters and why it's really, why it really matters to everyone and not just the people who can afford us. And, um, so I, I set a goal for doing a Ted talk and, um, I actually got the Ted talk in 2011 and, uh, at TEDxABQ and I sort of told the, a very abbreviated version of the thousand year story of New Mexico architecture and how it's always been sustainable and how, um, we'd only had mechanical systems for a tiny little sliver of that time. And before our buildings had always responded to their environment. And, um, and, and that was amazing. Um, and I became friends with some of the people that were others, other speakers from that TED event. And we were all sitting around the table um, in the green room, actually during the event. And um, a couple of them and I were speaking and or talking and they were and they said to me, you know, it's really cool, cool that you have this idea, but what are you going to do with it? <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> I just reached my like lifetime goal <laughs> of being on a TED stage. Right. I don't know. Right. And now, kind of, now what? <laughs> now what? And I was like, I'm, I'm barely breathing. Like I'm still co- recovering from the panic attack I had going on stage, you know? Anyway. Um, um, so that got me to thinking and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going <laughs> to, this is preposterous. I am going to make a TV show for New Mexico PBS about New Mexico architecture and every period that is represented in that. So pre-Puebloan, Puebloan, uh, Navajo, Hispanic period, American period, all the way up to modern day, you know, the weird stuff that we do here, the earthships and the passive houses and all that kind of stuff, the hippie communes, all of it. And which is ridiculous because I had no experience making a TV show or even putting video on my camera. (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing, but I decided I was going to do it anyway. And so I wrangled some of my other crazy friends um, into shooting a pilot with me. And so we went and we shot uh, we shot uh, La Posada in Winslow, Arizona, uh, a, a farm and table, a restaurant in Albuquerque that's really truly farm to table. And has, you sit out there and you look at the agriculture. Um, the, the food that you eat is growing out in front of you with acequias, which are irrigation dishes, uh, ditches, um, running past you and, um, and, uh, a historic site that had been really important called Los Poblanos in Albuquerque. And then we went one day to shoot at Acoma Pueblo and, Acoma Polo is amazing. If, for those of you that don't know, it's a historic village that's been there for 600 plus years, and it sits on top of a mesa. And the only way you used to be able to get to it was to climb the 250-foot mesa. Um, and um, they had a modern com- cultural center that had been designed by an architect here in Santa Fe that was just extraordinary. It's very, very modern, but it also, it, it tells the story of their architecture. Every bit of the building is, t- is taken from the historic village that's 600 years old that was taken from Chaco Canyon, which was a thousand years old and on and on and on through history. 
And um, so I wanted to tell the story of this building, um, this modern building. And we got there and Agamemnon was wide open. They just let us, they let us shoot all over the place. They let us interview their elders. And uh, it was just incredible. Anyway, so fast forward, we come back to the office and, I, and we're putting together what I thought was going to be an eight minute segment of this pilot. And my editor looks over at me. She goes, Rachel, you need to get over here. And I was like, okay, what's wrong? I thought there was something wrong with the film. Turns out she's like, we have an amazing story. And I was like, okay, so like how amazing. <laughs> and, um, um, and so she said, let me do some work on it and I'll show it to you. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And so she cut a 44 minute version of, um, a documentary on Sky City Cultural Center and the architecture of Acoma Pueblo. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, wow, you're not wrong. And so we sent it to the Pueblo, some friends of ours that we had worked with over there. And they said, this is amazing. Um, we want to show it in our visitor center. Will you cut it to 30 minutes? And so we did. And, um, and then my, the editor was like, you know, I think we should enter this in some film festivals, just a couple, you know, sort of cultural film festivals. And I thought, well, okay, that sounds kind of exciting. And we talked to ACMA and they loved the idea of increasing tourism. So they thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Definitely y'all can do that. And so we did. And so the film ended up going to film festivals and that was really awesome. In fact, we opened the Pueblo Cultural Center Film Festival, which is usually only Native American films. But because it was about Acoma and it was down the street from them, they thought, oh, we'll let these people tell their story. Um, and uh, and that was kind of amazing. And uh, one of our Acoma grandmothers who was there at the festival, she said, you know, this is really awesome. I wish we could show it to our kids in our middle school program. And, uh, and get them interested in our architecture. And so I looked over at my friend Zen, who's my editor, and I said, what do you think? And she said, we should build a curriculum around it. So we did. And, <laughs> and so we did. This is a common theme. <laughs> and so, and we, so did. we did. Yeah. Um, definitely not asking for permission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> stuff, just going for it. Yep. And we showed it to them, and they said they loved it. And then we said, you know, it would be really amazing if we could build a curriculum about New Mexico architecture for kids throughout the state. And so I started a little nonprofit called Architecture for Everybody. And we, that's what we're doing. That's, so I have a hybrid practice. I have a preservation and marketing practice helping other architects uh, tell their stories. Um, that's my for-profit side. And on the nonprofit side, we are... Uh, we just released the ACMA curriculum to the public about a month ago. And this summer we're at Bandelier National Monument filming and um, we'll be filming hopefully with San Ildefonso Pueblo's first Native American archaeologist in the like with a Ph.D. in the world. Um, he works right up the road and he's going to be working with us. And there's a potential we'll know after next week with tribal council that we'll also get to, to involve elders from San Ildefonso Pueblo to tell their story. Um, and then we'll we'll add on and do all the things that we filmed that we haven't turned into curriculum yet. As we raise more money, we'll just keep doing those. And then ultimately, um, we'll take workshops out into the community where they can learn to tell their own stories and they can learn how to triage projects and we can bring experts to them instead of, uh, I, I don't know, one of the things that uh, happens in the for-profit side of the business is I get calls a lot where they call me and it's, you know, some grandson and his Grammy has lived in the, it has had, their family's had this house for 300 years and everybody's moved away and there's no money and how do they preserve their buildings and how much money are they going to need and what do they need to do? And it's devastating to tell them like you probably can't even afford the architectural plan to get it to happen. Yeah. Um, if you have to ask about the money, you probably can't afford it. And, um, and so I, I decided to reach out to all of my architect friends and preservationists and historians and archeologists and, um, uh, engineers. And I said, you know, let's put together something where we can take something out into the community for a weekend and just triage what they need to do and give them a plan so they can at least try to do it one step at a time 
but it's something that they can actually afford. And so that's the next step for the nonprofit. And uh, it's really kind of exciting seeing what's happening because as more and more people find out about it and want to participate in it, um, it's just, it's drawing the most incredible people and opportunities and stories. And so I'm super excited that we've been sort of this crazy idea has turned into something that people are entrusting us with their story. And uh, it's just really amazing. And I, I, I'm just blown away that we're getting to continue to do this. All of this that seemed like, oh, well, you know, let's just try this and see what happens. And um, it's grown into something so much more than I ever anticipated. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's, it's your path. You know, and and because the theme keeps coming up. And so we did. You know, you said yes. <laughs> you said yes. Somebody asked you and you said yes. And whether you could do it or not, that was what you did. You just took the next step um, right. and you ended up where you are today. Um, so you have a you have a for profit side and a not for profit side. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose to sort of do it that way rather than just focus on the nonprofit side? Uh, because, you, because finding money for nonprofit work is really, really hard. Um, and it's getting harder in this yeah. economy. And, um, and people who already don't understand the value of architecture don't understand the value of investing in telling the story of architecture so that they can understand the value of architecture. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of in a, a you know, a loop, uh, you know, a, a stuck place where it's really hard to sort of make this story uh, relevant um, because people, I guess people have never thought about why it would need to be told. And uh, for me, it's, it's essential for our profession because I think that there's a separation between us and our clients and the general world um, where I don't know if it's romanticization or um, elitism. Some people would say, um, or what, but this whole idea that architecture seems so far away from normal people, um, that I, I just feel like I really want people to understand that what we do is, is, is really, it has the potential to create great communities and help rebuild strong communities and sustainable communities. And it's not just all about you know, pretty pictures and glossy magazines, right? It's not all about these people who are celebrated. It's the people who are in the dirt, doing the hard work, doing it for less than they deserve, you know, and, and, but they make a difference. They make a difference. You and, know, you can... <laughs> and and, those, the, and those stories are really what's going to change it, right? It's, it's telling the stories of each and every one of us. Right, absolutely. So, so how do we do that? As, as small firm architects who are working their butts off to try to you know, get their, their bills paid uh, and to follow their passion and do what they want to do, how do they, how do they um, also contribute to this overall mission of the profession uh, of, of telling the stories that we need to tell in order to sort of shift the perception of what we do? <sighs> so here's where I think that there's a shift that needs to happen uh, or that I would like to see happen, let's say, that, um, and, and I kind of alluded to it a minute ago. So I don't know about you, but running a practice is so tedious. It, it There's just so much required. You have to have financial expertise and legal expertise and code expertise and, you know, your own zoning expertise. There's just no level of, of space in there for heart. Right. It's all so mental and and it's really hard to do that. And a lot of us are burning out. At least a lot of my friends are burning out. Yes, That is definitely happening. And and I see it every day in our community. I get I get messages in the Facebook group uh, that we have and I get personal messages back to me saying exactly that, that they just they just can't do it anymore, that they just you know, they love it and they're passionate about it. But how do they keep going? I think it's because our brains have ravaged our hearts. We've, we are not keeping the balance of why we did this. Like all of us got into this. I mean, I, I, I won't say all. Most of us got into this because we wanted to make a difference in the world. And we love design and yes. we love architecture. And we are ground and ground and ground with all of the 
bull data that we don't have time to love it anymore, except for when we go on vacation and we take all these great pictures and our Instagram feeds are beautiful. Right. You know, but like just we never just step back and be like, oh, my gosh, we're in this humidity. And why did I take this project? Why do I love this project? Why did I want to do this? And and so I, it's strange because, like, how do you run a business of architecture? The, the way I see that people who are who are surviving and thriving in this kind of terrible economy, which, every, you know, I hear lots of people say that it's thriving in places in the country. It's not thriving in New Mexico. And it's not thriving with a lot of my friends who are in the grind every day, whether they be in Chicago or New York or wherever. Um, it's just not. And, and it's so strange. But I really do believe that part of the thing that we need to do is to back out and be like, and to remember, take five minutes every day to remember why we love it. And, to, and if we can, to talk about why we love it and to share that with people. Because I don't know about you, but I cannot walk out a door and people find out that I'm in architecture. <laughs> and that what do they say? Oh, I wish I could have been an architect. That is your audience. They are hungry to know what you do. And not the grind part of it, but why you do it and why you keep doing it. They would love to live vicariously through us. So would you say do that? How do you do that? Do you do that on social media? Do you do that on video? You do, you, do you go out and shake hands? Do you go out to your library and do seminars? How, how do you how do you do it that? It depends on who you are as a person. There's no way to do it all, right? Yeah. And some of us are better speakers, and some of us are introverts. I would say I will challenge every introvert um, because I'm an extroverted introvert. But I would challenge any introvert to go for doing the things that terrify you, like how audacious was it that I was like, Oh, I want to do a Ted talk. Like I didn't even know what I was going to talk about. I, it was preposterous that I would even consider that, but I did it because I wanted to learn how to be a good speaker. And as that happens, Ted gives you a lot of training in that area. And so I am not afraid of speaking to anybody at this point because I have a little bit of time behind me, but I would just set one goal at a time. I was like, okay, I'm going to learn about Twitter. I'm going to learn about Instagram. I'm going to do all this for a month. I'm going to focus on this and find out what part of it I like. And I'm going to focus on this next thing and find out what part about it I like. And, um, and, and slowly I've eliminated the things that don't work for me. I'm not a particularly great lecturer, for instance. Um, I'm more of a person who can inspire people. I'm not as interested in the dates of construction of things or the methods of construction of things. Um, so that's not really my bailiwick. Um, but I can, I, I love to tell the stories of the architecture that surrounds me and the architecture that inspires me and the architects that inspire me. Um, and people respond really well to that. So I, for me, it's worked out that I've been able to build a presence on social media that works for me. Um, but, uh, for different people, it's going to be different things. And, and that kind of comes back to this, like, take just a few minutes every day for yourself to be like, what part of this do I really like? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what part of this profession do I, where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in 10 years? And what can I do to help get me there now and worry less about the grind so much? If you even give yourself half an hour a day, your world will shift and not very quick and not in a long time. Um, and that has been something, you know, I think part of the driving force for me and a lot of people will say, oh, I don't have time for that or, oh, self-care, woo-woo, whatever, like I did when I people would say, oh, Rachel, you have to take time for self-care. I was like, bah, <laughs> you know, but then my eyes quit and I'm like, OK, well, now, now what? But the, the beauty of being a person who's going blind is that every single day is a gift and I, it makes me where I'm like, I'm kind of fearless. I'm not really a fearless person, but I'm kind of fearless in my profession because I, I kind of figure I have nothing to lose because it's all going to go away anyway. Yeah. Like there's going to be a point where my eyes don't work and because it is progressive and you know, and, and then what, and, and I'll have to decide what I'm going to do then. But you know, I made a decision that I wanted to become a storyteller um, because that was something that I could do without my eyes. I can still love up on architects and architecture without being able to see them. Yeah. Just like right now, you know, we're sitting here on a video call and we had to turn the video off. Well, I can still know who you are and love what you're doing. 
and share that, I could probably tell a story about you right now. <laughs> and it's been, and so that I, I, I kind of cultivated that because I thought about what am I going to do when the, all this is over, when my when the miracle days are gone, you know? Yeah. And um, and so what I decided to do was that I was going to be a champion of architecture and um, and I was going to work for the good. Did you and, do that in a formal plan or did you do that sort of say, OK, this is not going to work, but this is. So that's the direction I'm going to go. Or, Absolutely. So there was no real you didn't write anything down and say, OK, this is where I want to be. I've done both. Yeah. So you've done both. I've done both. Yep. In, in good days when <laughs> when I actually make those 30 minutes for myself. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm in the grind just like everybody else. Right. So on good days when I remember to do this and I and. I've actually scheduled it now, to be honest, um, because I just can't. Yeah. Um, well, that's how you get it done. Right. Right. And interestingly, I do it first thing in the morning or right thing before I go to bed because I don't want it to go away. I don't want to have to keep trying to carry it. Um, and it helps me have focus for the rest of the day. Um, but uh, there, yes, I do have, I definitely, I sort of had a strategy in my head. And then when I'm, being smart about business, I and um, taking that time for myself, I definitely write it down. I definitely have goal lists and yep. um, strategies. I, you know, I have a marketing plan. I have a business plan. I have all of the plans that you're supposed to have. But I didn't just sit down and blow through them. I did them. I built them over time, yeah, and I evolve. adjust them. Yeah, I adjust them on a very regular basis. I would even go so far to say that I'm probably adjusting my business plan at least monthly. Yeah. And that's why I ask that because that's an, I'm an advocate for planning to, to, to write a, a life plan that business oh, plan yeah. is part of that, but know where you want to go like in your life. life. Plan. That's a great idea. Right. And write a, a vision narrative, write a, a story about, and cause we're creative people. We like stories, write a story about yourself. What does your life look like three to five years from now? Um, and then that gives you something to, to build your, the rest of your plan on create, you know, your vision and your mission and your goals and your, actions all to get you to where you want to go. Because when I hear your story, it sounds like very much like, okay, well, then I did this and then I did this and this led me to that. And so I took that, that chance and I led me to there, but, but somewhere along the line, you got intentional about where you wanted to be. And so, Absolutely. so, so your, your consulting firm and your nonprofit are the result of those plans. Those didn't just happen. Those, right. those were planned <laughs> and executed. Um, and, and I want to plan, but yes, right. But <laughs> I, I want to know where we were going to go with it. But, but, but you were but intentional yes. about it. You said, okay, yes. I, I want to do this, this, this non nonprofit thing and I need to fund that nonprofit. And that's why I asked that question. Cause I get that question all the time about nonprofits. How do you fund a nonprofit? Well, build a profitable side of the business Absolutely. that helps you fund the nonprofit. And then you can do all the nonprofit you want to do. Um, Absolutely. And because grants are, are a total question mark. And if you have regular income coming in, it's much more doable. In fact, it's so interesting to see that that's how the nonprofit sector is actually moving right now. So that many, many, many more firms. So I'm fiscally sponsored by um, the Rio Grande Community Development Corporation in Albuquerque. And we do a whole lot of trainings. And there are all different kinds of organizations that are a part of that. And that's actually the way they're telling everyone to go now, is to build something profitable that can help support the, um, the, the organizations because the foundations are drying up. Yeah. I, I hope those who are listening right now, you listening <laughs> out there, who want to start a nonprofit because there are a lot of you because we're, we're that really? type of people. You know, we're people who want to give, give back. And many of us just want to do it because that's what we want to do. And they want to build nonprofits. I hear about this all the time. And then they say, well, how do I fund that nonprofit? We're going to fund it by grants and do all this. And I'm going to like, I say, well, you're going to spend your entire life funding that nonprofit. And that's all you're going right. to do. So I hope you like that. It's 80% of the time. I, in my experience, it has been 80% of the time is what's required to, to get funding. Yeah. And so if you build a profitable business side, then you have money to feed yourself and to feed your staff <laughs> and help support the nonprofit. So you can do that nonprofit work and still run a, a successful business. And you also talked about you know, finding that time to remind yourself of your passion. The best way to find that time is to build a strong business to build a, a business that's that's thriving, that gives you the money that you need, that gives you the resources that you need, to give you the time to remind yourself how much you love the architecture, which is why I constantly, that's my entire theme, that's my message, is to build the business first, and then Absolutely. that business helps 
fund your passion. And then right. talk about loving your passion. When there's money in the bank, you will love your passion because your <laughs> right. bills are being paid. Because you can't follow your passion. You can't get excited about what you're doing. You can't get excited about who you are if your bills are not paid. Because that, just, that, that is painful. That is stressful. That tears apart your relationships. That tears apart your passion. And it burns you out. And so if you can build a business that, that has money coming in, that will thrive and, and, and feed and fuel your passion. Absolutely. So I would just, that's my rant. <laughs> well, and I would add, I would actually add a hundred percent agree with you. And if you do, when you do it, um, make sure that the work that you focus on doing is related to the work that you want your nonprofit to do, yeah. because it's much easier if you're not trying to go in two different directions. So we do marketing and branding and uh, we're starting to get a little bit into video and 360 photography and all that kind of stuff on the business side. And that's supporting the work that's evolving in the nonprofit side, which is actually helping us shift the business. But they're all they're They work together very integrally. In fact, it's hard to build things sometimes because it's like, well, was this for right, the which, nonprofit which side, time right. or was this for the profit side? Yeah. So, um, that would be something that I would say if you want to really be successful at it and not just kill yourself with burnout, um, make sure that there's there's a correlation between the work. Yeah, that's um, great. Because it advice. makes it much yeah. easier. Because otherwise, you're building two businesses. One, Absolutely. One's profitable and one's nonprofit. And, 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 and it's the, hard enough the to build one. Between the two, <laughs> right. The, and the difference between the two is nightmarish, to be honest with you. It's just you having to learn how to work in the nonprofit world and the business world, they are two different animals. Right. So they have if, two different audiences. They ha- that you have a totally different way of speaking to people in the nonprofit world than you have in the business world. So basically, so, it's, so basically, <laughs> the profitable side and the nonprofit side um, have very similar visions and very similar missions, right? Yes. So they're basically mm-hmm. doing the same thing, but one people are paying you for it, and the other side you're you're helping people. You're giving it away essentially on one side. Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're doing the same thing but you have two separate organizations doing the same thing for different reasons. Exactly. I love that. So I hope those people out there who are trying to put together a nonprofit <coughs> and are struggling or trying to figure out how many students come back to come to me and say, I, I want to build this as a nonprofit. Um, mm-hmm. And so I hope they hear this message that you need to build a profitable side too. that, that it's not, you know, it's, it's, you, you can't do one without the other anymore. You have to do both. Right. I love that. Rachel, Rachel, thank you very much for being here with us today. This has been fantastic. I'd love to have you come back because I'm sure there's lots more to talk about. Oh, my goodness. Uh, So I'm happy to have you come back anytime you want. Um, Thank you. I want to share how people can reach out to you and get involved in what you're doing uh, or ask you questions or just say thank you. Um, the website is Arcania, right? Did I say that right? Uh-huh. Arcania, That's right. Arcania.com. And so it's A-R-C-H-I-N-I-A.com, Arcania.com. Um, the nonprofit site is architectureforeverybody.org. So go check out those two sites. Um, and basically, Arcania Design all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, Arcania Design. On Twitter, it's just Arcania. But if you search Arcania, you're going to find Rachel. Um, so definitely go do that. Go go search her out. Go see what else she's doing because there's a lot more to this story. Um, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us here today and for sharing mm-hmm. your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I and please, everybody, do reach out to me because we are stronger together and we can make a real difference in the world as collaborators and commiserators. And um, I will do anything I can to celebrate you and your work. And um, I'm, I'm dying to find out what you're doing with um, with your dreams. So please reach out. Thank Where, you. Where's, the, where's the best place to find you? Where are you most easily uh, accessible? Easy, easiest is either Instagram or Facebook, really. Okay. Arcania or Design. email. Yep. Yeah. So what's your email before we wrap up? Uh, intention Design, uh, in, like setting an intention, yep. design at gmail.com. Intention Design at gmail.com. We'll have all of this in the show notes. This is episode 231. So you can go to entrearchitect.com slash episode 231, and we'll have links to all of this stuff. Um, Rachel, thanks again. I appreciate you for coming here today. Thanks so much, Mark. 
So there you go. You heard that right. It's episode 231. That's the link to share. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 231. Let's share this episode for Rachel and architecture for everybody. And let's get that message out to the world about what she's doing over there because it's so inspiring. Rachel has such a great story. Uh, I loved listening to how she sort of came to be where she is today. What an, a, fan, a fantastic origin story. Um, go check out Architecture for Everybody and Arcania and see what she's doing over there. I get requests all the time. Very often do I get requests from young architects who want to start up um, nonprofits and don't know how to do it. They have this idea that they're going to do this and they're going to get grants and they're going to get easily funded and they're going to spend their whole life getting funded and they're never going to get to the nonprofit, the charity part, the part that they want to make a difference because they're only going to be spending their whole life building, you know, getting this fundraising going. Take a message, take a lesson from what Rachel's doing. Build a nonprofit first. Build the the profitable architect, not the pro- nonprofit. Build the for-profit architecture firm first, or a design studio, or some sort of source of income. Make sure it's something that's related, something that you love, and do it for profit. And then use the profits. Use that twenty percent. Throw that into the charity. Throw that into building this nonprofit. Build a profitable corporation. Build a profitable firm that supports the nonprofit side. That's the way to build a successful nonprofit. So if you're thinking about that, listen to this episode again. Go reach out to Rachel and pick her brain and listen to what she's doing over there at Arcania and and Architecture for Everybody. And again, share this episode with a friend. It's entrearchitect.com slash episode 231. And while you're listening and sharing and doing all that wonderful things, why don't you go listen to my friends over at ArcaSpeak Podcast and Inside the Firm Podcast. Those are two fantastic podcasts. So if you're in, in iTunes or, or, or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this, go over there and subscribe to those guys too. They do a great job and you'll really, really like it if you're not listening already. And, and learn how to earn that elusive 20%. Are you earning 20% on every project? Well, I can show you how. Download our free course today at entrearchitect.com slash free course. How easy it is, is it to know, to remember? How, how, how easy can I make it to remember that link? entrearchitect.com slash free course. It's our profit for small firm architects course, and it's free. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. 
Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.